you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 2, Gospel of John. And as you're turning there, let me um, share a true story with you. <clears throat> On the 3rd of January, 1943, Staff Sergeant Alan McGee got into a Flying Fortress bomber, B-17, on his seventh bombing mission. This is during World War II. He was 24 years old and was one of the 10-man crew of a B-17 bomber. They took off from Molesworth, England, and their target was a German submarine port in France. When McGee's bomber reached the French town of Saint-Nazaire, it came under heavy fire from German anti-aircraft guns. The bomber took a couple of nasty blows on its wing and engine it started spiraling towards the ground and was spinning at a very high speed. McGee had no idea how to control the plane and he saw a small opening which he quickly jumped through. McGee plunged almost 22,000 feet. Folks, that's four miles. He dropped four miles without a parachute, uh, falling unconscious before crashing into the roof of the St. Nazaire railway station and he lived. In fact, he lived 60 more years after that. Now, I want to ask you this morning, do you believe in miracles? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you'd have to say yes. Um, but there are a lot of people that deny that miracles happen. Uh, in fact, they would look at a story like that and they say, well, you know, it's, it's possible that uh, somebody could fall and, you know, plummet at what I've read is 120 miles per hour, a human body dropping through the air, plummet for four miles, land on a hard roof, and survive. Not necessarily a miracle. It could happen. Well, I don't know. I'd say the odds took a pretty bad beating in that case. But what do you think about miracles? You know, in the Bible, obviously, there are miracles. And there's two kinds of miracles recorded in Scripture. And uh, the Bible doesn't call them this, but I'm, I'm just giving them a, uh, a name here. First of all, there's miracles of providence, uh, like the story that I just shared. In other words, there's a special ordering of manner and the time. Something happens, and it's just an unusual occurrence in how it happens and the time. It, it defies all odds. That would be called a miracle of providence. There are miracles of providence in the Bible. In fact, I would say even a miracle like a fish swallowing a man would be a miracle of providence. Doesn't necessarily break the laws of science, but it certainly beats the odds, doesn't it? But it's possible, okay? Now that's a miracle of providence. But then there is a, that would be that would be I guess I would call a second order miracle. But a first order miracle is where there is a new act of creation, when the natural laws are suspended. Some people might even say they're broken. Uh, energy or order that defy the laws of thermodynamics, if you're a scientist, the basic laws of science, thermodynamics. And, and this is an occurrence that, that just breaks the mold of natural law, something that only the, the power of God can accomplish. That's a first-order miracle, okay? Now, today we're going to be looking at Jesus' first miracle, which is a miracle of the first order. Uh, so let's, let's look at John chapter 2. And if you have your Bible, and even if you don't, let's stand together. I'm going to begin reading uh, the first 12 verses of John chapter 2, where Jesus turns the water into wine, and he turns unbelief into faith. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, I did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray together. As the song said, that we sang just recently, Lord, open the eyes of our heart. Give us understanding, and if we don't have understanding, give us faith. Faith to believe that you are a God of the impossible, a God who loves us, a God who is faithful. Truly, Lord, how abundant is your goodness to those who fear you and have worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of man. Truly, your mercies are great. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, and we thank you for that. So we pray that we might see the wonders of your power at work in our lives and we might rejoice, we might grow in our faith and understanding, and even during the difficult times, Lord, when you don't seem to show up, grant us the grace to cope, the grant us to keep moving forward, the grace to help us walk in a manner worthy of your high calling, and bring glory to you as others see our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, quite a fantastic miracle when you t take water and turn it into something entirely different. That's a miracle of the first order. Somebody once said about this miracle, the conscious water saw its God and blushed. <laughs> I kind of like that. It's a miracle of the first order, and it's an amazing thing. And let me just uh, give you a little bit of the setting here. This is obviously a wedding, and Jewish weddings were a major social event. They happened after a betrothal period, which is a very serious time as well. But weddings typically lasted about a week. Um, it began with the groom and his friends arriving to pick up the bride and take the bride to where they were going to live, and then there was a week-long celebration. And the groom was responsible for the expenses. Wow. You know, it wasn't mom and dad, <laughs> it wasn't the mother and father of the bride. Uh, so this is a big deal. And Jesus' mother was there to help. Some extra-biblical sources say that she was the aunt or uh, some relative of the bride and the groom. We, they're not sure which. But anyway, she was there to help out with the planning and what was going on. And also Jesus and his disciples were at this wedding. It was going on for a whole week's time. Now, a serious problem happened here when they ran out of wine. That was a big deal. That was a much bigger deal than you and I can imagine, running out of wine. Um, in fact, this was such a serious, 
serious social faux pas, they say that if you were the groom and something like this happened and you ran out of wine, y you would bear a social stigma for the rest of your life. People would remember that. In fact, ancient sources say often they could bring litigation against you. You could be sued somehow. This was a really big deal to run out of wine. And I don't know why they ran out of wine. Maybe they had more guests than they planned. Maybe Jesus and his disciples crashed the wedding. They weren't expecting that. Don't know exactly why, but something happened, and they ran out of wine. This is a very terrible thing. Now, I want you to keep in mind a couple of things here as we go through this scripture. Two things, first of all, that God wants from us. First of all, one of the things is he wants is for us to put our faith and trust in him. And then our faith and trust should uh, continue to grow, okay? The other thing is that he wants from us is to be glorified. He wants people to see himself in us and through us. He wants to receive glory th from us. So he wants us to have faith and trust. That's what we need to do. He wants to receive glory through us. Now, how does that happen? Well, faith and trust grow as we respond to life situations, as you're going to see here, and, and we act on his word, okay? We all encounter situations in life where we have the choice of either acting on his word or not. And God is glorified when we respond. And when we respond, he provides the need. And so this morning, I want to talk about how faith and trust are built. And I'm not saying this is the only way. I'm just saying this is one way. You may see it. You probably will see it at some different points in your life. Uh, the first thing that happens in that case is a problem arises. And here, this case, we got a wedding feast and they run out of wine. This is a problem. This is a big deal. And when I talk about needs arising, I'm specifically talking about needs that cannot be met by you and by me by human resources. This is a need that happens and, uh, well folks, you and I all have needs that come up, problems that arise. And we fix them if we can, right? I mean, it's a human response. But I'm talking about needs that come up, problems that arise that you can't do anything about yourself. You are totally at loss. Um, and so here's this, uh, this poor groom, I would imagine, at the wedding that's running out of, that, that's run out of wine. And apparently he can't, he can't afford to do anything about it. I mean, it's, it's got to happen right now. Now, sometimes God orchestrates our needs, our problems. And at other times, they just, they just happen. For instance, in John chapter 9, remember Jesus walking by and he and his disciples, they see a man who was born blind, born blind from birth. And the disciples say to Jesus, uh, which is kind of a popular theology nowadays in some, well, why is that man blind? Who sinned? Was it his parents or him that sinned that he was born blind? You know, there's got to be a reason, right? Cause and effect. He's blind, got to be reason. Must be sin involved, either him or his parents. Well, folks, first of all, how could he sin? In the womb? He didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. Jesus said, no, this has happened that the Lord might be glorified. And then Jesus healed him and God was glorified. So the implication is, no, this is something that God orchestrated. This isn't just happenstance. And I'm going to take advantage of it here. This is something that was planned by God. 
Uh, you see that um, in a very major way with the death, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where Peter gets up and preaches to the Jews, and he, he blasts the Jews. He said, look, uh, God planned this from long ago, but you crucified him. In other words, this is part of God's plan. This is no accident. God orchestrated this whole thing, but you're still responsible. So sometimes needs, I think, are orchestrated by God to set us up so that we can grow in our faith and he can demonstrate, you know, his glory. Now, I'm not talking about human carelessness. I'm not talking about things we do out of sin that we're responsible for. You know, then we do have to kind of deal with it ourselves. I'm talking about things that God may bring into our lives. So what happens when that kind of a problem arises? Well, hopefully we do. We turn to the Lord. Where, where else are we going to go? Human resources have failed. And so in this case, Mary turns to her son, Jesus, and he, she says, oh man, they've run out of wine. And um, I don't know what Mary was expecting him to do. He had not done any miracles yet. He wasn't a miracle worker as far as I know, but she still turns to Jesus, and somehow I guess she figured um, she had the faith to believe that if she turned it over to Jesus, things would work out. But I don't think she knew what was going to happen here. So Jesus looks at his mother, and he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, if I responded to my mother like that, <laughs> you'd say, That is so rude. Woman, bring me a beer, you know kind of a, the uh, macho kind of a thing. But it's really not what he meant. The, the word, word here, woman, the word in the Greek is gunai. And it, it, it doesn't have the disparaging negative thing that you and I would take. It, it would be like saying um, a lady. You would say, lady, what does that have to do with me? Or we'd say, ma'am. It was actually a... a when they used it, it was, a, it was a respectful, okay? So when you look at this, as I used to look at this and say, well, you know, how do you answer his mother like that? It was, not, it was not anything bad. He was just saying, well, what does this have to do with me, lady? What about? And um, the implication here is that Jesus is now going to officially finish or end his role as being the head of Mary's family, you know, Joseph apparently by this time had died because he's never mentioned anymore. And so Jesus is now going to officially end his role as the son or the head of Mary's household, and he's going to begin his own ministry. What does he have to do with me? And, and she says, uh, you know, basically she tells the servants, well, do whatever he tells you. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. In other words, I've got a timetable here. And up to this point, my hour has not come. Now his hour would come, and ultimately the hour he's talking about is his death and crucifixion and resurrection. But essentially he's saying here, okay, I'm transferring now. Things are going to shift. My hour has not come. But then she says, do whatever he tells you to do. And he does this fantastic miracle. Now he's beginning his ministry. Now he is shifted, as it were, from her household to his ministry. So the first thing that happens here that's going to be building the faith of the disciples and others is there is a problem. you got to have a problem, okay? Something that you can't, in and of yourself, just easily take care of. But secondly, 
God's will must be known and then acted upon by faith. So Mary says to the servants, do what he tells you. Now they got a choice, okay? But God's will needs to be known and act, acted upon by faith. Um, Alexander Ray, former pastor years ago, said this. He said, faith must be based on certainty. There must be a definite knowledge of God's purpose and will. Without that, there can be no true faith. For faith is not a force that we exercise or a striving to believe that something shall be, that if we believe hard enough, it'll come to pass. That may be positive thinking, but certainly not biblical faith. Another man said, faith is discerning the will of God in a situation and acting on that knowledge. Another preacher years ago I talked to said, faith is something you do in view of who God is and what he said. God's will must be, you got a problem, so now secondly, God's will must be known and acted upon. And God's will comes in several different forms, okay? And I'm just going give you two major ones here. First of all, God's will can come as a promise to believe and trust. He gives us promises. Um, My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. If it's a genuine need, God will provide if we're walking faithfully to him. Example, many years ago, my oldest daughter, firstborn child, was born with a um, congenital, congenital, I guess congenital situation where her ribs didn't come together normally. They kind of were concave, concave chest. It was called pectus excavatum. And um, we'd taken her to the doctors, and they said, well, if this continues, I mean, if it's untreated, she will end up becoming uh, stoop-shouldered, kind of pot-bellied, it's going to affect her posture, and obviously it'll affect her wind, her endurance, and all that. So it was correctable surgically. And the problem was um, I was just leaving a staff position at one church and was going off on my own. So I was leaving one insurance policy that the church had covered and was going to be getting a new policy. And Holly was just three years old, a few months after three years old. So I had no guarantee that this was going to be covered by either insurance because one insurance said, it's a pre-existing condition, we won't cover it. That's what they said. Uh, the other one said, well, you've already gone off the policy and so forth and so on. Um, my wife and I really felt that it was the right thing to do to have it corrected at this point in time, which was what the doctors recommended. So we trusted the Lord. And this was hard because I thought... Um, this is going to be so expensive, Children's Hospital up in Seattle. Get me in the hospital for over a week, you know, ICU, the whole bit, tens of thousands of dollars. I thought, I'm going to be paying this thing off for years. And we got down and we prayed. We just felt it was the right thing to do. And she had the operation um, in the hospital for nine days, as it were, as it turned out. And I can just remember, um, I guess, the tension of thinking how... This is going to put us in financial bondage. But we kept praying for the Lord and saying, Lord, you brought us over here into this situation. I was an associate pastor, youth minister, music guy at the time. And, and we really felt God brought us over here. Lord, this is really your responsibility. Take care of us, right? My God shall supply all of his needs. You know, quoted scripture to him as if God didn't know the Bible. <laughs> and um, I remember several months later, I'm sitting there and I was just... I'd left the staff position at the church, and I'd gone in business for myself, landscape architecture, and uh, didn't have any clientele. 
and I'm trying to get work and all that, and I'm getting further and further behind. And I remember telling my, my late wife at the time, I said, uh, we are $1,000 behind. Well, 40 years ago, that was a little bigger deal than it is now. And I said, I have no job in front of me. I don't know what to do. So we got down and we prayed. A couple of days later, we got a check in the mail. And what actually happened was both insurance companies that we thought weren't probably going to cover it, both decided they, they would cover. And they both sent in 60% of the uh, surgeon's fee. And so we wound up with a check made out to us of the remaining 40%, which was $1,000. Exactly what I needed. We made a profit off of our daughter's operation. Because <laughs> both insurance companies paid. <laughs> the year went on. I'm still struggling, trying to find work, starting to get behind again. Now she's got ear infection, got to get the tubes in the ears. Some of you moms know about that. And the pink medicine. And we're behind. And all of a sudden, uh, like several months later in September, we get another check. This was for the, uh, the hospital stay. And we got a check for over $1,000. A couple thousand dollars. And that covered us for the rest of the year. Now that was totally unexpected, but it's always shown me that if we truly have a need, God will meet the need. We had a big problem. Uh, we trusted God that he would take care of us one way or the other, and God came through. It was a promise to believe and to trust. And when that happens, you just have to walk by faith. Now the other way that God <laughs> comes through is sometimes there is a command that requires obedience. It's an act of faith. See, there's one thing to walk by faith. The Bible's promises. and We walk through and we trust and we trust. And there's another thing where it's just the definite command. You do this and we have to act upon it. And that's exactly what happened here. Jesus told the, the servants, do what he says. And what did Jesus say to do? By the way, Mary said, do whatever he says. That's good advice. Do whatever Jesus says. If you know what Jesus is saying to you through his word, do what he says. Now, responding to faith is not easy. I want you to notice something here. Did you notice what these guys were asked to do? Filling the water jars itself was an effort. Responding in faith is not easy. If it was easy, it wouldn't be much faith, would it? This is difficult because these are stone jars they were used for ceremonial purposes. Each one, it says, held from 20 to 30 gallons of water. Now, I did some calculating here. You can do it if you want to. A gallon of water um, weighs 8.345 pounds. Okay? Well, let's just say 20 to 30 gallons, 25. You got 208 pounds of water. Plus the stone jars, big things. In other words, you fill these things up, each one of these weighed between 250 and 300 pounds. Jesus says, fill them up and take them to the master. And I don't know how many guys it took to even carry one of these things. I'm sure Jesus told his disciples, you guys help out. You know, and, uh, and they're filled to the brim. And so the servants and probably Jesus' disciples have to carry these things to the master. Now, Faith often is not just difficult, often it appears very foolish. Because when did the transformation occur? They filled it up with water. The transformation occurred sometime between when Jesus filled it up and the master of the ceremony actually had them placed in front of him. But can you imagine the thought that's going through the minds of these servants, you know? 
God doesn't answer until faith is acted upon. They didn't stand there. They didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus, this is water, right? He hasn't performed a miracle yet. And he's telling these guys, fill them up with water and take them to the master of the ceremony. And thinking, this is really going to look stupid. <laughs> but God doesn't answer until faith is acted upon when we ask us to do something. Jesus commanded the servants to draw some water, take it to the master. Changing of the water into wine didn't occur until after Jesus commanded the servants to draw some water, take it to the master. And you think about the scripture that, do you remember in the Old Testament in um, 2 Kings chapter 4, during the time of Elijah, there was a widow uh, that came to Elijah and said she had a big problem. She said, we're out of food. All we've got in the house is one little, one little jar of oil. And Elijah gives us a strange command. He says, I want you to go send your kids out, your two boys out, and collect all the jars they can. Lots of jars, big jars. Why? He didn't tell her why. Well, that's going to look kind of foolish. There's nothing running around asking for jars. But the boys go out and they collect the jars they bring in. And Elijah says, start pouring. She started pouring. And the oil never ran. It just keeps coming out of this little cup, you know. That's the first order miracle, by the way. Kind of like Jesus taking the two loaves, you know, the fish and the loaves of bread, multiplying it for several thousands of people. But it didn't happen until she acted upon what Elijah said, which could have looked kind of stupid. I think my favorite story on this is when um, Peter comes to Jesus, remember, and he says, uh, you know, the IRS just told me that we needed to send in our taxes. It's tax time. And it's like, what are you going to do about it, Jesus? And Jesus tells Peter, take a pole, go down to the lake, throw a hook in the water, and you're going to pull out a fish with a gold coin in its mouth, and um, that'll pay our taxes. Now, that took a lot of faith on Peter's part. Can you imagine how stupid he would look? I can just imagine Peter standing by the lake, and he sees one of his fishing buddies come along. <laughs> oh, great. Hey, Peter, what you, got, what you using for bait? Nothing. I just threw a hook in the water. <laughs> really? You expect to get anything with a bare hook? Oh, yeah, I'm going to catch a fish and it's going to have a gold coin in its mouth. Uh-huh. <laughs> it looks ridiculous. But when he did that, when he acted on faith, the provision came through. There was a need, he acted on faith, and there was the provision. So, third point, God will meet the need and be glorified. The water turned into wine. Now let me tell you some false explanations of this because, you know, liberal theologians are allergic to miracles. They don't like miracles. They don't believe in miracles. Well, how do you, how do you explain something like this? Well, one, one view is uh, the master of the feast was kind of going along as a joke. In other words, uh, Jesus said, uh, makes him fill up this water. They take him to the master. And they say, uh, here's more wine. And the master said, oh, oh yeah, this is, this is the best wine. It's a, just a joke. But that's one explanation that's come up. With. Another explanation is, well, they took the dregs of the wine. 
you know, the leftover, the stuff that's at the bottom of whatever bottles, and they poured those in to these jars and then filled them up with water, and somehow this fooled the master because he was probably drunk into thinking that this was good wine. I mean, some of these theories are really ridiculous because what kind of sign is that? What kind of glory would God get from that? And there's, there's these, by the way, there's a conservative view too. Uh, there's one conservative view that says Jesus really didn't turn the water into wine because uh, we don't, you know, we don't believe in drinking alcohol, so probably he turned it into grape juice. Um, there's a problem with that because grape juice didn't last very long back in that day and in that climate. Uh, juice fermented very quickly in the Middle East. Uh, oftentimes the wine was diluted with water to prevent drunkenness. So that was a factor. But the master says to this, this is good wine. He didn't say this is great grape juice. And by the way, the word for juice is different than the word for wine. So this was alcoholic wine, but probably diluted to some extent. Okay? But whatever. But there are a few things that we can learn from this account. First of all, God is very unpredictable in how he responds to our needs. Sometimes he will not respond the way that you think he's going to respond. Um, what do you think the servants were expecting? Jesus said, fill the jars up with water, take them to the mass. Again, he's not performed any miracles yet, so they weren't expecting a miracle. And right up until the time the water was transformed, the servants probably thought what they were doing was ridiculous. Boy, this is going to make us bad. Our reputation in town is going to be toast when we take this water to the master. And by the way, there's, uh, Jesus d there's no grandstanding here, like you see on some of these television evangelists. Jesus uh, didn't speak to the water. Jesus didn't go over and wave his hand over the water. You know, Jesus just willed the transformation, and it happened. God answers in ways that are not always the way we expect. I don't know what these guys were expecting, but it wasn't what had happened. It wasn't what he did because they were amazed. Now, let me just give you a little disclaimer here. What I'm saying is you have a problem, God-sized problem, only, only God. You look at the Word of God and you respond according to what Scripture says, a commandment, a principle, whatever. And God will meet that need. But folks, here's the qualification. A desire is not a need. Let me say that again. A desire for something doesn't necess necessarily mean that, that is a need in God's eyes. Because you and I will have some strong desires and we will pray and we will plead. If it's not a need that God sees, it may not happen. Um, you know, I have often wondered, I had a strong desire when my son was hurt in that accident nearly 17 years ago um, that he would be healed. And I have continued to pray for his healing for 17 years. And he's minimally conscious, totally dependent, can't talk, can't move much, raise his eyebrows, move his hand a little bit. My heart's desire was that God would heal him. But God didn't see that as a need. Somehow, in, and what I, what I take from that is somehow in God's divine economy uh, that's different than mine, okay, that 
the other lives that were touched because of his accident. His friends, because of how my wife and I responded, and all of the letters we got, and people we found in other parts of the country that had similar situations and we would minister to and all that. Somehow in God's divine economy, that is more important to God and God's plan than my son being healed. Do I like that? No, not necessarily. But what I'm saying is my desire and your desire doesn't always necessitate a need in God's eyes. Ravi Zechariah says this, he says, Faith is a confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and his power, so that even when his power does not serve my end or your end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. Okay? Something else we can learn from this account is that God, there is an abundance to God's grace. You know, Ephesians says God is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Folks, we got about 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. Okay? Now, you think that's, that's excessive. Well, I think this is the Lord's gift to this couple that's getting married. But remember, we're talking about a wedding that goes on for an entire week. A lot of people at a wedding, a lot of wine's required. And by the way, the master of the feast said, this is not only a lot of wine, this is good wine. This is, this, is, this is better than the stuff that we had at the first. Usually you bring out the good stuff at the first and after people have drunk for a while and their taste buds are kind of shot, you know, and then you can bring out the cheap stuff. And he says, man, this stuff's better than the first stuff. So here you got 150 gallons, Jesus' gift to the wedding couple, more than they probably even could ask or imagine. And in meeting the need, <coughs> God's glory is revealed. Verse 11 says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, they were already following him. And now they really believed in him. Who could do this? This is supernatural. And God was glorified. He's glorified in the sight of men. Whenever God meets a need of yours that you can't meet yourself because of putting your trust in him, God is glorified. Other people notice and that's what God loves. Loves to manifest his glory through us. A few weeks after my son was hurt, I'd been I flew down to California to be I had to kind of fly back and forth. My late wife at the time was down there. But I remember going down there and, and staying with him for a week and he, Seth was in a uh, uh, very deep coma at the time. And I got an airplane there at the uh, Ontario airport and I was gonna fly home. And I happened to be sitting next to a, a couple of military guys young guys and they were apparently flying up to um, I think they're going to be stationed at Port Lewis at the time and so we got to talking and um, I asked them where they were going and they told me and they asked me what I was doing and I told them that I'd just been with my son who was in a coma from an automobile accident and um, you know I had to fly home to take care of business and all that and I remember this one the soldier sitting next to me this one guy said because I told him I was a pastor so he says to me he says so you're a pastor, right? He says, yeah. He says, well, you're kind of in the business of helping other people, comforting other people, you know, doing what pastors do, aren't you? And I said, well, I suppose I am. He says, well, what about you? How are you handling this? And I got to share with this guy um, about the fact that um, when we got there, 
that the uh, school that he was going to, Cal Baptist, um, sent their campus minister and said, we're, we're putting you up in a Marriott hotel for as long as it takes, which was over a month. All expenses paid. You can eat at the motel. Uh, people in our church um, back home put all this money and sent us a whole bunch of money. All of our needs were met. The school provided a late model Cadillac for my wife to drive while she was down there for over a month. And I just began to share with him all the things that God was doing to cushion us, to comfort us, you know. And I, and I believe in that young man's eyes, God was glorified. So let me just kind of bring things to a close here. Remember God, that God is absolutely sovereign. Um, if you have trusted Jesus Christ and, and have become personally his possession, you and I are an object of his love. And when you and I encounter difficult situations that are beyond our control, what do you do? Do whatever he tells you. Okay? It could be just acting on a promise to believe and to trust. That would be walking in faith. And folks, sometimes this is hard because I said, your desires are not necessarily a need. And you may have strong desires that you struggle with. And you say to yourself, I don't like the way that God made me. My desire to be different. And the world is telling me to follow your heart and do whatever your heart says to do. No, you do whatever he says. You trust him. You trust his love. And even though those desires may never go away, the Bible promises that just like that children's message a little while ago, someday you and I are transformed if we're children of God. And the Apostle Paul says that our troubles in this world, our struggles, our desires are going to seem light, momentary. They don't seem that way now. But Paul says compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in you, can't even compare it. We will become new creatures in Christ. A promise to believe and trust, walking by faith, or obeying a command. That requires an act of faith. Do whatever he tells you. That's good advice. God will prove faithful, and that will help your faith in him to grow. And he will be glorified. God loves to take something that's common, like water, and make something uncommon, like wine from water. Jesus is in the business of conversion, right? <laughs> water into wine, unbelief into faith, if you'll trust him. You know, one of the greatest miracles of the first order today, you don't think about this, regeneration. Where God says, if you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, something will change. You look the same. For a while, maybe you act the same. But you have become a new creature in Christ. And all of a sudden, you have been changed from something that's temporal, common. You're going to die, and you're going to die, and you're going to spend eternity apart from Christ. And a miracle has happened. You're now a new creature in Christ, and you're going to live forever in glory. That's a miracle of the first order, even though it doesn't seem like it. So let me ask you this morning. Um, some of you may be facing a pretty tough problem. 
How are you going to respond? Is there something in his word that where God is telling you, this is how you, this is what you should do? This is a commandment, or is there just a principle in scripture? Are you going to have the faith to continue to walk and to trust in him? You got a problem? Then respond in faith to what God's word says. And God will make provision one way or the other. He will prove himself faithful. It may not be the way that you want, the way that you think, but God is a faithful God. If you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to do that. There's going to be some folks over here that would love to pray for you if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, if you've never had that transformation, that conversion. Water into wine, unbelief into faith. Let's pray. Lord, you are truly limitless in what you can do. Your word says that nothing is impossible with you. And I pray for anyone in this room today that's having a serious need, that, Lord, you would meet that need as you see the need. If it's not a need as you see it, Lord, if it's a strong desire, then you can still do that and be glorified. Or you can give them the grace, the power, the will to continue to move on, to continue to bring glory to you as we walk through and live under difficult conditions, and all of us will at one time or the other. So we thank you for your faithfulness. We pray that our faith and trust in you may grow. And Lord, you may have to bring in some difficult times to prove yourself, but I pray that you would prove yourself to those people, to these people that are sitting here this morning with those kind of problems. Grant them faith and trust. Show them your glory and show others around them your glory as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John, did you want to...